Acts 5, 12 through 16. Now many signs and wonders were done among the people by the hands of the apostles. And they were all together in Solomon's portico. None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high honor. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes, both of men and women, so that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on beds and pallets, that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. The people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. Two weeks ago, we focused on the prayer in chapter 4, verses 29 and 30, where the disciples and Peter and John, in view of the condition of the world and the need of the church, prayed, grant your servants to speak the word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal, and signs and wonders are done through the name of thy holy servant Jesus. So there's a sense of tremendous need, and there was a desire for signs and wonders to be shown, and therefore they prayed for them, and I said, we ought to pray like that. We ought to pray that way. Now the question that uh, I want to get to in just a few minutes is this. Why did those early Christians in Acts 4 want so badly for signs and wonders to be shown. There are a couple of things that you would think would make them not necessary or desirable. Uh, Of all the generations that have ever existed in the history of the church, that generation was in least need of divine validation as truly Christian and as uh, knowing the resurrection. Because there were hundreds of eyewitnesses to the resurrection of Jesus walking around in Jerusalem. We know that from 1 Corinthians 15. Never again would that be the case. Never again could you walk up to somebody who had eaten with Jesus, touched Jesus, talked to Jesus like Peter and say, Now, is it really true? And watch Peter and test his character to know that if he was a man of God and he spoke truth, never again would you have that kind of ability to validate and verify the truth of Christianity. This generation of all generations needed least the help of validating signs and wonders. So the question presses, why did then they want them so badly as to pray for them? In Acts 4.30. Another reason you would ask that question. Is that. uh, The greatest preachers. Who have ever lived. Were preaching. Then. Peter. Stephen. Paul. Philip. Never has there been an anointing on the preaching of God's word. Like there was in those days. And therefore, if the word of God is to be magnified as all sufficient for the salvation of sinners, why in the world would anybody pray 
that alongside the preaching of the greatest preaching, there would come signs and wonders. Very, very important question. Now, you need to know where I'm coming from here. This historical question, and that's just a historical question, has nothing to do with the day directly. It's just a historical question. Why would the Christians in Acts 4.30 plead that signs and wonders be done? That's just, has nothing to do with why you should plead that way, though I think you should, and I think it'll be more obvious why at the end. But you need to know that today, one of the objections, not the only one, I'm just dealing with one, one of the objections brought against the cry for signs and wonders and healing today is an objection that shatters on the answer to that historical question. Now, I hope in just a few minutes to get to that and to show you what I mean. If we can answer the question why the early disciples cried out for God to stretch forth his hand to heal and to do signs and wonders in the name of his holy servant Jesus, if we can get that answered in view of who they were, then one of the objections brought against that very cry today is going to shatter on the rock of that answer. Now, let's look at today's text, because I think the answer is clear and simple. I think a fifth grade class working on this text would give you the right answer. Namely, in Acts 5, 12 to 14, why were signs and wonders desirable? Simple question. Answers right on the face of it, I think. But let's let's just work through a few verses here to, to let it come out. Verse 12, many signs and wonders were done through uh, among the people by the hand of the apostles. And they were all together in Solomon's portico, and, and two results happened to these signs and wonders and the Christians gathering there. Effect number one was a kind of trembling, fearful awe at these people, the outsiders, the the unbelievers kind of stood in awe of what in the world was going on here among these Christians because Ananias and Sapphira had just dropped dead. And the verse preceding, verse 11, said, Fear spread through the church, through the city. And now here come these Peter, this Peter before whom two people dropped dead, and he's doing many signs and wonders. And I'll tell you, these people were very hesitant to say, Oh, neat, let's get in on this. They were not quick to do that. That's the point of verse, what is it, verse 13. None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high honor. So there's a kind of a, they held them in awe. What in the world are these people? And then here's the second effect. Verse 14, not everybody kept their distance. It says, and more than ever. Believers were added to the Lord, multitudes, both of men and women. There's the answer. Signs and wonders were desirable. They were prayed for and sought after in Acts 4.30. 
because they helped bring people to the Lord. Many were added to the Lord in response to Peter's doing signs and wonders here in this text. Now, that's not an isolated incident. I read through the whole book of Acts again last night, fast, looking for this. I want to find every place where a miracle, sign a wonder, leads people to faith. And I found 17. And they're all listed here on my paper. You can buy it for a quarter in the church file next Sunday. Maybe 21, but I'm only including the ones I'm sure about, not the ones I'm unsure about. 17 times in the book of Acts, signs and wonders lead to an ingathering of one person, like the Philippian jailer because of the earthquake, or many people. Let me just give you some illustrations of the kind that are crystal clear in Luke's intention. No question about it. Pentecost was one. We know that. 3,000 people added. Um, The healing of the lame man in chapter 3, 2,000 more added. Now, if you want to watch with me, turn to chapter 9 for two where you know Luke means for us to get this connection. You know, some people say, well, you shouldn't learn your doctrine from the book of Acts. You shouldn't learn your doctrine from Romans. Well, of course you should learn your doctrine from Romans. But I'll tell you, Acts was not written like a fairy tale for no purpose. Acts was written to teach lessons about God, Christ, the church, and life. You just have to be careful when you read it that you recognize the way Luke writing a story means to teach. When you write a story, you want to get across a point, at least if you are a moral person, usually you do, and Luke was. Now, I think you'll agree when you see these two that this was an intention of this inspired writer. Um, Chapter 9, verse 34 and 35, this man named Aeneas is sick. And he gets healed by Peter. And uh, Luke says in verse uh, 35, And all the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him, and they turned to the Lord. Now, that's real clear, I think. They saw him healed, and they turned to the Lord. Now, lest you think that's isolated, just a few verses later, chapter 9, verse uh, 40, Tabitha is dead. And she's raised from the dead by Peter. And in verse 42, it says, It became known to all Joppa, throughout all Joppa, and many believed in the Lord. There it is again. So I'm just going to, without any doubt in my own mind, and I, I hope not in yours, say that one of the reasons, that the disciples prayed in chapter 4, verse 30, the way they did. Namely, give us boldness, stretch forth your hand to heal, perform signs and wonders by the name of your holy servant Jesus. One of the reasons is because people came to Christ when that happened. People got saved when that happened. That's right through, 17 times in in the book of Acts. Now, here's the objection that is raised today when you start saying we should pray that way. Now, there, there, are, several, there are a lot of objections. I, I, I dealt with five of them at least last spring in a couple of messages, and you can get those messages. 
I think one of them is entitled, Our Signs and Wonders for Today. That's the name of the message, so you can find it real easy in the file cabinet. But I'm not going to deal with all those. I'm concerned with one because it burdens me. The objection that says, if you today begin to pray, stretch forth your hand to heal, do signs and wonders in the name of your holy servant Jesus, that there might be more people drawn to Christ and saved, you are guilty of minimizing the value of the word of God to save sinners. You are jeopardizing the centrality of the gospel, which is the power of God unto salvation. You are compromising the all-sufficiency of preaching to save sinners, and that's bad. Now, that's a serious objection. And it has some textual warrant. Let me read you the foundation of it. Romans 1.16, the gospel is the power of God unto salvation, not signs and wonders. 1 Corinthians 1.22, Jews demand signs, Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, the power of God. Jews demand signs, we preach. Or the words of Jesus, Matthew 12.39, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign. Those are the texts that are brought in against seeking for God to stretch forth his hand, to heal, and to do signs and wonders in the name of his holy servant, Jesus. Now, there's a problem here. Now, I've never heard any of those objectors even raise the problem, let alone answer it. Namely... If praying for, yearning for, longing for signs and wonders compromises the gospel, belittles the word of God, jeopardizes the all-sufficiency of preaching, and if it is the mark of wickedness and adultery, why did they do it in Acts 4.30? Why did they seek it? Why did they pray the way they did? Why did they say, O sovereign Lord, grant us to speak with boldness while you stretch forth your hand to heal and signs and wonders are done through your holy servant Jesus? Why didn't they say, whatever you do, don't do that lest you compromise our bold speech? Why didn't they pray like that? What's, there's something going on here. You see what these objectors are doing? And, and I've, I've been thinking of other instances where they're doing this. Uh, and I'll, I'll, I think I'm going to write the star tonight about this. So you can see another one. They're, they're treating a pro, they're, they're making something look like a problem today, which is created because of today. When in fact, you got exactly the same problem in the book of Acts. And if there's a solution for it there, that is, if there's an answer to that historical question, it'll be the rock on which this objection shatters. And there is an answer. And therefore, this objection is going to be shattered, I believe, 
on the answer to the historical question, why did the disciples in Acts 4.30 want signs and wonders? Why didn't they think it compromised the gospel? Why weren't there an adulterous generation for asking for signs and wonders? I've never heard that question raised by the objectors. In fact, as I read and as I listen to those who are opposed to the moving of God's Spirit in power today, again and again and again, they don't ask New Testament questions. They're only operating on experience. It's so funny because that's what they accuse charismatics of doing. Now, the answer to these questions, namely, were the disciples guilty of being wicked and adulterous when they asked for signs? And were they compromising the word of God? The answers go like this. Answer number one. If you demand a sign from God to validate himself to you, while that demand is coming from a resistant heart that is using the demand to cloak an unwillingness to believe you're wicked and adulterous, and that demand is evil. For example, if you ever ask, why does he call them adulterous? The Pharisees didn't commit adultery. I mean, they were spick and span. They were just legalists to the core, and they committed adultery. So it was a spiritual thing. What was it? It's this, I think. They had a love affair going on with the world here. They were the wife. I'm a wife, all right, here. Jesus is my husband. I got this love affair going on with money. Luke 16, 18, Pharisees were lovers of money. Jesus, after a long separation, comes back to me and says, I love you, I want you back. That's the incarnation. Comes to the people of Israel, I love you, I want you back. Now, you got two possibilities here. You can either say, he's, he's wonderful. Why did I ever do this? I'll never, I'll never have an affair with you again. Or, this is the, this is the adultery Jesus was talking about. Or you can say, you feel trapped. You want this so bad and you're about to be exposed. And one of the best protective devices for this relationship is to say, you're not really my husband. You don't really love me. Prove it. Prove it. Come on. Give me more signs. Does one sign. Give me another one. That's not enough. Prove it. Where do you get this authority? And all the while inside, they're so insecure because he's got you. And you've got this affair going on with the love affair the, with, the, with the world. And you don't want to give it up for anything. And so then the demand for signs is wicked and adulterous. It's evil. But if you go to your husband, Jesus, and say, Oh, Jesus, stretch forth your hand here now and heal that your name, my husband, would be honored and glorified and being married to you would be seen as the most glorious of all things. I tell you, you're not adulterous. You are not wicked if you pray like that. Does that make sense? Is that an answer? Is that an adequate answer for you? It's an adequate answer for me because I don't believe the Bible contradicts itself. 
And the Bible says it's wicked and evil to seek signs. And the Bible says Peter and all these godly Christians sought signs. It's very manifest to me there's a wrong way to and a right way to. And the wrong way is to do it adulterously. Demanding signs to cover your own unwillingness to believe. Here's the second question and answer. Remember the question was, if, if the word of God is sufficient to save, if the word of God is the power of God unto salvation, isn't it a compromising of the value of that word to ask God to bring in signs and wonders alongside of it? That makes sense. But they did it. So who am I? Who am I to tell them what they should do? I'm just... I'm just under the Bible, that's all. I see Luke's inspired confirmation of the pursuit and the enjoyment and the usefulness of signs. And I hear Paul say, Jews seek signs, we preach Christ. What do you do with that? I direct your attention now to the answer, I believe, in Acts 14, verse 3. This is the most important verse in the Bible about the relationship between signs and wonders and the Word of God. The most important one I can find is the clearest statement in all the Bible about how signs and wonders related to the Word of grace, the Gospel. Paul and Barnabas are in Iconium, and uh, Luke says they remained a long time there, speaking boldly. That's exactly what they prayed for back in chapter 4, verse 30. That's half of what they prayed for. Speaking boldly for the Lord. Now here's what God did. Who bore witness to the word of his grace. There's the key phrase. Bore witness to the word of his grace. Granting. This is how he bore witness. Granting signs and wonders. To be done by their hands. Now this is utterly crucial. This is utterly, utterly, utterly crucial that you see this. Signs and wonders are not against the word. They're not over the word. They're not instead of the word. What are they? They are a witness to the word. Is that fair? God bore witness to the word of his grace. So I would use the phrase, signs and wonders are a secondary testimony to the truth of the gospel. Now, the reason I call it secondary is because I, I thought the word was the testimony to the truth. And it is. It isn't. I mean, Christ died for sinners. He rose again. Preach that. And you say, all right, I'll preach it. Here's my testimony, world. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. He died. He rose again. Everyone who believes can have all their sins forgiven, go to heaven forever and ever. That's my testimony to the truth. Well, that's the testimony. So... Along comes a sign and a wonder. And what is that? That's the testimony to the testimony. That's what it says, right? He bore witness, that is, he testified to the word. Now, a lot of people say here what the signs were was to validate the apostles' authority. never says that in the book of Acts. Anywhere. Not close. It says it's a validation of the testimony of the word. you got two witnesses to the word, an apostle and God. That's what it says. The apostles bear witness to the truth by their word. God bears witness to the truth that they speak. 
Now, let me try to sum it up like this and see if we can rescue the word while believing what they believed. Signs and wonders do not save anybody. Signs and wonders do not transform the heart. The devil can do signs and wonders. He will increasingly do signs and wonders, which may be why God is bringing them back to the church. It says very plainly in 2 Thessalonians 2.9 and Matthew 24.24 that there will be false prophets who do signs and wonders that are attempted to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. Therefore, signs and wonders in and of themselves are not even necessarily Christian. Therefore, if you isolate them as a value, they do not have very good evidential ability. They only are secondary testimonies to the testimony. And you know what saves people? Well, I could say the gospel saves people. That'd be right. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation. I love the gospel. I love the word. I love to preach. I'd like to do signs and wonders. That's up to God. I know I want to preach because the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. But that's not quite accurate. You can be more precise because in uh, 2 Corinthians 4.4, you really find out what the core, the life-changing core of the gospel is. You know what it is? You know what changed your heart if you're a Christian? You may not even be able to articulate this, but I know what changed your heart. What changed your heart as a Christian and made you believe was the self-authenticating Glory of Jesus Christ visible in the gospel. That's 2 Corinthians 4.4. 4. The light of the knowledge of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. You saw it because God opened your eyes to behold it. And it was so attractive to you, so conforming to your need, so settling all your problems that you embraced it as your only hope. That's how you became a Christian. That's how everybody becomes a Christian. Therefore, let us exalt the word above signs and wonders. Yes, yes, it is the word that mediates the glory of Christ who self-authenticatingly wins you to himself. So what are signs and wonders then? Signs and wonders have the, the value of music. Art, drama, magic shows, illusionists, uh, street plays. It's a helper. How does it help? Signs and wonders shatter the shell of disinterest. Signs and wonders shatter the shell of cynicism. Signs and wonders shatter the shell of false religion. That's why they're so valuable on the mission field. Real witchcraft going on, real transactions with the demonic world. Along comes a power encounter. Jesus wins and the false religion is shattered. In other words, the value of signs and wonders is real simple. It helps the fallen heart fix its gaze on Jesus who saves alone. I'll say it again. The value of signs and wonders is that it helps, it doesn't work always. In fact, Stephen got himself killed by doing signs and wonders. Nobody believed when Stephen did signs and wonders in Acts 6 and 7. But for many, 
it will shatter the shell. It will open. It will attempt. It will help them to fixate on Jesus. And then the self-authenticating glory of Jesus shining in the gospel can quicken and attract and draw out and save. And I don't think we belittle the word when we say that signs and wonders perform that subordinate function. If we say it does, then we're just being wiser than Scripture. And that's not a good thing to be. Now, my purpose this morning hasn't really been to validate signs and wonders for today. I've done that before. I'll probably do it again. My purpose is simply to show what their function was in the book of Acts. So that if anybody comes along and says, uh, that's a problem today, you can just say, it wasn't a problem then. That's all I want to do this morning is to show how they did not jeopardize the value of the word in Acts and they did not show that the people who were seeking them in Acts 4.30 were wicked and adulterous. Now let me close with some quotes from another person that may have more credibility than I do, namely Martin Lloyd-Jones. I quote him because he's inside the Reformed camp where I'm at home and what I mean by Reformed, for all you people who who aren't uh, theologically up-to-date, which is almost everybody, uh, because it's just a fancy word for believing in the sovereignty of God in the salvation of sinners. For us who care about the sovereignty of God in the salvation of sinners or the doctrines of grace or Calvinism with a little c, Martin Lloyd-Jones is important because for 30 years he preached at the Westminster Chapel and we really believe in the word of God. We really believe in the power of God's truth and love it. Here's what he said. It is perfectly clear that in the New Testament times, the gospel was authenticated in this way by signs and wonders and miracles of various characters and descriptions. Was it only meant to be true in the early church? The scriptures never anywhere say that these things were only temporary. Never. There is no such statement anywhere. Close quote. Now, Lloyd-Jones came to the end of his ministry in 1968. Four years before that, he preached a series of messages on the power of the Holy Spirit from which these quotes are coming. I sincerely believe Martin Lloyd-Jones was becoming disillusioned with steady-state ministry. He believed in it. I believe in it. What I mean by steady-state ministry is what I've been doing for the last ten years. It's valuable. It's infinitely valuable. I'll keep on doing it the rest of my life, God willing, if revival does not come. It's valuable because people get saved. Saints get established. I tell you, when one person walks into this room on Sunday morning ready to drop dead and they get enough strength to live another week, I've lived my life well. All right? I believe that. I believe I'm investing my life in infinite value if no sign or wonder ever happens in this church. So did Martin Lloyd-Jones. But he came to the end of his ministry and he... I just feel between the lines as I read it, I'll let you judge, that he was saying... The world is just too wicked, too hard to settle for steady state ministry alone. That's the way I feel today. I don't know how you feel about people in your life whose problems are so awfully complicated and so terribly deep and so rooted in so much mess that you feel absolutely powerless. We're supposed to be the redeeming community in the world. I don't understand people who don't want more power, who don't want to see signs and wonders come to release people from addictions, to release people from the bondages of abuse, 
to release people from depression, to release people from sin. I don't understand that. But I want it real bad. And Martin Lloyd-Jones said like this, we can produce a number of converts. Thank God for that. That goes on regularly in evangelical churches every Sunday. But the need today is much too great for that. That's 1965. The need today is much too great for that. The need today is for an authentication of God, of the supernatural, of the spiritual, of the eternal. And this can only be answered by God graciously hearing our cry and shedding forth again His Spirit upon us and filling us the way He kept filling the early church. What is needed is some mighty demonstration of the power of God, some enactment of the Almighty that will compel people to pay attention and to look and to listen. That is why I am urging you to pray for this. He says, when God acts, He can do more in one minute than man with organizing can do in 50 years. That's right. That's what revival is all about. When God lands, when God comes by, when God reveals His glory, when God stretches forth His hand in an unusual way that they were crying for in Acts 4.30, more is done in one minute than has been done for 50 years in people's lives. Let me close with this. I went to a conference over at uh, Church of the Open Door the last three days on church growth, their perspective, and I love their perspective. It was a great conference. One of the things David Johnson, the pastor there, said in a lunch in a luncheon uh, meeting Friday was, you know, one of the reasons we might not be seeing extraordinary demonstrations of power in our ministry, talking to pastors, is because we're not attempting very much that requires it. How public are we making the name of Jesus at stake? If he didn't come through for you, how many unbelievers would be let down? If the Midwest Health Center for Women does not close this year in answer to our prayers, how many unbelievers in this city will not believe in our God? In other words, does anybody know we're praying about this? Have we laid anything on the line publicly? What in your life is laid on the line publicly so that God, for the sake of his name, has to come through for you? Precious little. Precious little. Therefore, this summer, we're going to hit the streets again with all our heart. BITC hits the streets after two more terms. We'll hit the parks all summer long with our worship band, with prayer teams, and we're going to be more bold than we've ever been before. We're going to go through those parks and gather in the people and say, let's pray for you. What's wrong in your life? What do you need? We want to pray for you. God dwells in us, in this community. He works miracles for people who look to Him. He can change your life, deliver you from sin, heal your bondages. Come, we'll pray for you. And we'll see whether or not God stands up for His name. This summer, and I've got this little yellow sheet here, which simply says, I've got an idea for ministry this summer. We've got some already that you're planning. We want to know, we don't want to make the ministry happen. We want God to touch you. What is God touching you to do this summer that will put his name on the line? 
You can get these at the table out there and talk to David and Michael. We want to just support what God is doing in your heart for this summer. Summers where you can get out of this building, you can get on the streets, you can get in the parks, you can get in your neighbor's yards. You can do things and you can talk more openly and more freely and more boldly. Let's do it. Get one of these sheets if God moves you and let's hit the streets this summer and see whether or not God comes through for us. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I pray that you would stand forth now in your spirit and stretch forth your hand to heal even today. May people walk away from this room knowing they've been in your presence and felt your touch so that there are discernible changes in their attitudes and in their relationships and in their bodies and in their sin struggles. As people stand here at the front for just a few minutes, I pray that if, if any here, Lord, need a burden lifted, need someone to share it and to pray with them, that they just walk up and, and uh, mention it to our prayer teams and, and ask for prayer. Father, dismiss us now with your blessing. Strengthen and guide. Help us, I pray. Stand forth. Stretch out your hand. In Jesus' name, amen.